Welcome to Cyber Warfare Prevention, securing your software and applications, sponsored by Fortify Software on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Today's panel will discuss proposed government legislation focused on software security, best practices in application security regimens, and recommendations to stay ahead of the growing cyber threat landscape. Now, here's your host, Tom Temin. And welcome to the panel. Our guests today are Kevin Carroll, He's former program executive officer for Enterprise Information Systems at the Army. And he's now president of the Kevin Carroll Group. Also, Bob Lentz, who is former deputy assistant secretary of defense for cyber identity and information assurance in the office of the assistant secretary of defense for networks and information integration. And Joe Grace, former chief information officer for Navy Medicine. Gentlemen, great to have you on our panel today. And we're going to start from a little bit of background first before we get into the meat of the topic today. Uh, let's talk about cybersecurity, how the landscape has changed in recent months, really, and certainly recent years, and, and uh, what that will mean for software assurance. But let's talk about the cybersecurity landscape and what's new. Joe, why don't we start with you? Well, I think that the perspective of cybersecurity and cyber assurance has always been if we keep everybody out of our house, we have a large fence, we have a guard dog, we have a whole bunch of people that keeps you from getting into the house. But usually if someone's going to steal something, it's a lot easier if you're inside the house to do some damage. But we, again, try and keep people from the outside. So we focused on security from perimeter values. We focused on our routers. We focused on our network. And it isn't that those things aren't important, but what we're finding is that most of the breaches now are coming from the inside. So they're coming from the software that was written years ago when they didn't have a whole lot of information as to how people were going to hack in. And we talk about hackers as though they are 13-year-old um, kids sitting in their underwear. But what we really have is that hackers are pretty sophisticated programmers that have learned the ways to go in and take advantage of any of the vulnerabilities that are written in this code. And some of our software was written 20 years ago, and we really don't have a feel for how it was written. We've just been using it. And now as we start to take those applications that have been running behind our big perimeter systems and we webify everything. So we're taking systems that currently ran inside and now we're letting people reach from their homes or from their offices or from the airport. We're using Wi-Fi in Starbucks. There's a much broader access to the systems that we're utilizing. And so now we're actually taking a look at how are people getting in because they're certainly having to reach in from the outside. If I'm going to reach in from the outside to manage my business, my operations, my medical components put in a health record from my home and give issue a prescription well someone else can come in from the outside too and the way that they come in is the very same way i'm going in except i've got a doorway and they're coming in trying to find that doorway that's the secret hatch and bob what's your perception of how the cybersecurity landscape is changing and shifting we have the insider idea and the web idea what else is going on well, I think the first thing is is that the uh, the threat has escalated much faster than we ever imagined. Uh, it's becoming much more sophisticated, uh, much more aggressive, um, and uh, and so the defenses that we put in place today really aren't comprehensive enough to take care of that threat. Um, the uh, the approaches that we've used, as as uh, we just talked about, uh, have really been inadequate to stay up with that that type of threat and. The, re the result is is that Gartner, as an example, just came out with some statistics that said that you know 75% of the breaches are occurring at the application level. Uh, so a lot of our network defense capabilities uh, aren't doing the job. We've long recognized the application layer has been a major source of vulnerability. But we really have tried to, to really 
deal with it in a way that has left this area uh, extremely open uh, for the kind of attacks that we're seeing every single day. So, And Kevin, thoughts on the changing landscape? Um, for the Army in particular, I, I believe that we developed applications really worrying about security, but worrying about security from a network perspective only. Uh, we wanted to ensure the applications could run on the network, the Army leadership, the Army technical uh, oversight, all was focused on the network and protecting the network. Uh, the big shift I see going on today is on the application side. Uh, as we're, we want to protect the applications, we know people probably will get into the network and they will access data and applications within the Army. So our big push really has been to try to, uh, to focus much more on how we protect that, that data in the applications and the applications themselves and how we can do that in a manner that allows uh, really a whole change in the culture of the Army on how they look at security and how they uh, manage it. Uh, and I think that's, that, that'll be a really, really big change. The problem we've had in the past is the focus of the Army and the DOD services, quite honestly, was focused on the tactical systems, not the business systems. And what we've learned, and certainly Iraq and Afghanistan are a good example of this, the uh, business systems are actually more important sometimes than the tactical systems for fulfilling requirements, fulfilling needs, doing command and control now. And so there's been a big, big push to really make sure our business systems are protected and protected stronger than they ever are before. But it's just really beginning to change in that manner. Well, it sounds like we're going to be getting into the idea of defense in depth. But before that, let's talk about software assurance. This concept is coming in. You hear it more and more, software security assurance as opposed to perimeter assurance. So, Joe, let's start with you. What does that mean? What is software assurance? Well, you know, if we were going to build a lamp and you were going to put it in your house, someone's gone through an underwriter's laboratory and they've made sure that that wire can take the heat and you've got a wire that's big enough for whatever the application is. The wire size for a washing machine is certainly bigger than the wire size for a lamp. And so we have some policies and governance models that have been put out there that have that keep people safe and so when you buy something at a store the basic assumption you have is that someone's taken a look at that we really haven't had anything like that in software software was written by people that were smarter than everybody else that understood programming used to sit in their rooms and eat pizza and play uh, doom and atari at different points in their lives and they're the ones that have built these systems that we're utilizing so we always made sure that the uh, like we said the perimeter was secure and our network was secure but no one was looking at the actual wiring that we came in. So when you actually built this thing, what are the components inside that? So our systems of certification in many cases are checkboxes. We measure what we can measure. We measure what we can actually take a look at. So if I can say that uh, your programmer is American, he grew up in the United States, he is not a foreigner, boy, there's a checkbox I can do. It doesn't tell you what his motivations are. It just tells you that I can check that box. If I can go through and say that the code was run through... 15 guys that looked at it who were pretty smart, and that's my requirement, boy, I've got that checkbox. But what we really didn't see is, were any of the things that we were doing actually making a difference? So now what we've got is certain abilities in our, what we would call our certification, our CNA, where the checkboxes aren't sufficient for what we need to do. And we've actually got to go through and take a look at what are the actual things that are happening within the software? Have they written back doors? Did people write something that allows someone to come in and modify it later if they get disgruntled? Uh, where you really hear this is disgruntled employees or the ways that a lot of things do. Well, software programmers could be those disgruntled employees. So the assurance is now taking a look at how is it actually written? 
what was put in there, and is it safe, good, well-written code? And Bob, what are you seeing on that regard with respect to software assurance? Is this something we can look at and see and judge and evaluate? Well, I, I think definitely it is. I, I think software assurance has, has been a topic that's been um, long studied but not really acted upon. Uh, we had a defense science board that I was uh, part of a few years ago in the, def- in the DOD looking at this problem. We've been talking about uh, software assurance, but we really haven't, as, as the old saying goes, we haven't really walked the talk. Even industry uh, is, of course, um, recognizing this fact. Uh, you look at Microsoft. I mean, they have been publicly stating that for many years they were focusing on functionality, uh, and the industry was the same way, the rest of the industry. Uh, then we moved to quality. Uh, but the reality is we really weren't focusing on the security aspects. Uh, some of industry are starting to do that. Uh, but but the, as Joe said, we are so far behind the power curve that we have so many embedded applications and software that's out there today that is in very critical mission areas. And, and as Kevin said, areas that right now in today's world with terrorism as it is uh, really puts us in a, in a very, very difficult situation. And Kevin, you can't get software problems and software vulnerabilities unless you first buy the software. So there must be an acquisition piece to all this. How does that play into assuring that the software is safe? Yes, and, and that's been a concern uh, for a long time about when we are acquiring software off the shelf, as well as developed software. But certainly when, as we move more t- towards commercial products, uh, how do you know where it's developed at? How do you know what kind of code's in it? Uh, even the big companies, we know many of them are doing offshore development work or in- incorporating pieces from offshore. So there was always that fear, uh, and as Bob mentioned too, I think we knew that, and, and a lot of general officers in the DOD expressed concern about that, and we kind of gave lip service to it, quite honestly. We really never did or, or could really 100% ensure that uh, the software was clean as we had hoped it had been. And what happened was it was through uh, a disgruntled employee, as Joe mentioned, or through uh, an accident in some degree that we found we did have backdoors in some of the software or we had some, some language in there we didn't recognize. Or, and, and a lot of it was innocent. So a lot of times it was uh, actually put in there to help in the development process, but still it was a security vulnerability. And, and so it's, it is a concern, and, and we've not done a good job, in my opinion, to really uh, figure a way around uh, how we're going to ensure these commercial products are, are clean enough to be on the DOD networks. Well, one way might be if we have a policy for that. And a lot of the policy development to date has been focused on the perimeter with the FISMA guidance and uh, the reports that agencies have to do. Uh, there's STIG, there's CNCI. Are any of these guidelines pertinent yet? Any of this policy really focused on what I think you've identified as a key issue in software assurance, and that is security at the application layer. Uh, When you mention the web, that's where people are hitting the networks inside and outside the application layer. Do we have the right policy framework in place to help that issue? Uh, Absolutely not. And so that's one of those areas that you can unequivocally say we just don't have the policies. And, you know, a good way to describe this is that you've got to have money, you've got to have intent, and you have to have a desire to do that if you're going to make it work. And we've often said in the area of security, it's a real easy thing. If your home's never been broken into, you live in an area where you leave your screen door open, your neighbor can come in and walk around, someone tries to sell you a multi-million dollar security system, it's probably not of real interest. 
If your child was just abused and stolen from your house, you could probably sell a multi-million dollar security system that afternoon with very little effort. In fact, they want it installed that minute because now there's a need and there's a reason. The problem is we haven't anticipated and haven't been aware of what's been going on in this software assurance role. So we're actually on the leading edge. We now have hacks that have broken in. We have people that have compromised major missile systems, defense systems, health records. But the policy, unless the policy's in place, the people that are executing this and managing these programs actually don't have the authority nor the money nor the funding or any way to get to it unless someone says, thou shalt. If it's, that would be a good idea. Hey, that's, that'd be a lot of fun. Why don't we try that? You can't work on that and you can't fund that. And also the government acquisition rules take 18 months to institute. So you've got to You've got to put this in place and then give some funding. Otherwise, it's just a great idea. And recently, they've come up with some uh, policy that we believe is coming out of the Senate Armed Service Committee and is coming off of the Hill that, that actually takes this issue on head on. And Bob's probably a better one to talk about this since he was in the world of policy. But um, we really believe it's starting to give some teeth to the matter of having to go through and do some code analysis and do this before you have the problem not afterwards, because traditionally we're a reactive government as opposed to a proactive in this area. Okay, and Bob, let's go right to you because they're in the area of standards, and we'll get into some of the technologies uh, later on. But one industry, the credit card industry, which clearly has a vested interest in security and also the perception by all the millions of users that they're security or we'd never use a credit card, and that's the PCI set of standards. Is there a lesson in that for the federal government with respect to a best practice in policy that can apply across the board that everyone agrees to, and you know what you've got to do? Well, I think there is. I think the uh, uh, the financial sector has has done, in some cases, uh, at least at the tier one level of the, of the financial sector, has done a, a pretty decent job at trying to deal with uh, this area. Uh, but uh, I think that really points out one of the, the major flaws in the policies within the Department of Defense that you know I was part of, uh, in my previous position, uh, which is that we centralized uh, a lot of the network security activities, but there was a conscious decision to decentralize uh, the application, the local uh, activities, uh, let the services and the agencies uh, really deal with it at a local level. Uh, and that really has uh, resulted in the problem that we have today. And I think the, from a policy standpoint, I think what's reflected in the Senate legislation that I think is moving forward, and I believe the DOD really recognizes as well, is it really needs to be much more centralized teeth uh, in this area of, uh, of security. It is fundamental. Uh, with, when you go to the financial sector and look at PCI, uh, that's where they, would, at least within the Tier 1 sector, uh, have made some major strides in trying to buttoning down this area. And, Kevin, so when you say, when we talk about centralizing it and making it government-wide like we did with the perimeter side, uh, but not yet for the application side, that smells a little bit like maybe something in the FAR, maybe something in the acquisition regulations that could enable that as well. That's true. I mean, most of uh, the people in the program side of the government uh, and the acquisition side, they're, uh, they're going to look for how it's being implemented. They, they, we won't, uh, usually don't do much until the policy's implemented. And in that implementation, it's important that it become, becomes part of the process that we go through to get a program approved and fielded. And so that's going to require uh, sometimes in contracting. In this particular case, though, I think it needs to be brought into all the agencies' uh, process they go through to, to uh, receive security clearance. 
basically on their programs before they're fielded. And right now, like I mentioned earlier, they don't really look at the software itself. Uh, and so I think if the ability of this legislation to uh, change that culture, uh, force all the government agencies to focus on it, and then to begin really to prioritize and, and help fund uh, those efforts and make that part of its normal process today that all programs go through to get approval before they go out to the field. Okay, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fortify Software's Cyber Warfare Prevention, Securing Your Software and Applications on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. I'm Tom Temin. Your mission-critical IT system just got hacked. Confidential data stolen. Could this have been prevented? Government organizations are experiencing dramatic increases in the quantity and sophistication of cyber attacks. Fortify Software Security Assurance Solutions are helping government organizations secure the software they depend on to run their agency's most mission-critical operations. Find the vulnerabilities inside your software. Fix them quickly and cost-effectively. Fortify your applications with security. Visit Fortify.com. That's Fortify.com. On May 20th of 2010, Vivek Kundra released the State of Public Cloud Computing Report. It states that as we move to the cloud computing environment, we must ensure standards are in place that protect the privacy of our citizens and safeguard our national security interests. Fortify Software can help you unlock the benefits of the cloud while allowing you to feel safe about the security of your applications. Find the vulnerabilities inside your software. Fix them quickly and cost-effectively. Fortify your applications with security. Visit Fortify. Fortify.com and unlock the benefits of the cloud today. Welcome back to Fortify Software's Cyber Warfare Prevention, securing your software and applications here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Our panelists today are Robert Lentz. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Identity and Information Assurance, and that's in the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense Networks and Information Integration. And Kevin Carroll is former Program Executive Officer in the Enterprise Information Systems Group at the U.S. Army. And Joe Grace, former Chief Information Officer for Navy Medicine. And we were talking before the break about some of the policies relating to software, and I think primarily we're talking about custom-developed applications where the coding is done for the government or sometimes commercial applications are so radically altered it might as well be custom software. And we talked about the need for assurance. And once you know that need, what are some steps you go through to remediate software that might be found to have vulnerabilities? Joe? Well, I think that's a great question, Tom, because now that we have tools like Fortify that go through and down to the code level find vulnerabilities, if we find the vulnerabilities and don't do anything about it, then we may as well have not taken the time to find the vulnerability. That's the real issue. So not only do we have to have policy that says we're going to go down to the code level and we're going to do an analysis, we then have to put funding behind it because an idea without funding is just a really good idea that's great to talk about on a panel like this, but we don't do anything. And the problem is that we oftentimes think that, boy, that new program that's coming to us from some third party that's a COT software, we talk about commercial off the shelf, that's not the real problem. The problem is we in the government generally take software, modify it 90% so that it fits our specific needs, which is custom-developed software. And that's where we write those vulnerabilities in because we're rewriting the code 
as it's done. And, and that's not necessarily bringing in a good sign. If we don't take those vulnerabilities and then apply a way to remediate it, which is one of the real advantages of what Fortify brings, is that it not only shows you the vulnerability, but it then gives you a remediation path based on a better way to write that line of code. So we train our programmers and we give them something to then fix it. If we don't remediate, it's just another great idea. And Kevin, from your experience in the Army, can you think of examples where that was the case? Well, it's been a, we've, it's happened a number of times to us in the Army. Well, first, before we had tools, and we were doing the manual labor approach to looking at lines of code for the most part, uh, we would we would uh, it would come up. I mean, we would know uh, we had an issue, but we never would have the time we felt to get the product to the field to correct the problems. Now that we have tools like Fortify, which we do use in the Army, and it has the it it it, it can quickly identify those uh, issues that need to be fixed. Uh, the, the potential is there to do it and do it early in the process uh, or do it before programs transferred to. So the Army has taken major steps. It utilizes uh, fortified tools. It identified really the, the vulnerabilities, and it is in the process of fixing those vulnerabilities uh, on key systems within the Army. So there's been a major step forward in the last uh, couple of years of really trying to make uh, these systems stronger. And, Bob, at the DOD level, you can really see some of the consequences of this. Uh, Kevin mentioned the SPOT program. That got actually the attention of the Commission on Wartime Contracting and was called out in some major reports. So remediation really has a pretty big imperative besides the technical issue. It really affects how people see the entire Defense Department in some ways. No, I think you're you're exactly right. And, and I know there's been some successes. Uh, I know within the Army... Uh, if I recall, the Army uh, munitions system, uh, which is another example of, uh, of a specific command that's dealing, of course, munitions, a very important part of our business line. And I know, at least I believe, they took that uh, issue on in terms of dealing with application security. And, and they realized that, uh, as was pointed out by Joe, that, and I was amazed even in my role uh, in the Department of Defense previously, what the percentage was of customized code. I could not believe it. Uh, I, I really was under the impression that uh, we got code uh, in a box, more or less. It was modified maybe slightly, uh, but really not to the extent uh, percentage-wise and the extent technically uh, in terms of those modifications. And, and as, as is pointed out by, you know, that, that I think the result is is that we do have a very, very significant problem um, and particularly for mission-critical systems. Uh, I mean, that should be our priority one, and, uh, and we have to get on top of that situation or we're really going to be having more of these issues that we're dealing with every day. And it's not just breaches, but it's operational issues that can have a significant impact on the safety and security uh, of the Department of Defense and, and the nation are, overall, especially when you're dealing with critical infrastructure uh, areas. So it sounds as if, uh, as Kevin mentioned, too, there's the uh, schedule issue to test software and make sure that the tools are applied to find out what might need to be remediated. So, Joe, it sounds like that's something that should be built into the schedule, into the contracting, into the whole process before you deploy software. I think you've hit a key area that we really haven't discussed well in government and haven't resulted in, and that is that if I fix the code while I'm writing it, it's a pretty inexpensive fix. I just go back and I rewrite the line. If I've now embedded into the point where I'm just about ready to go live, well, the cost just went up by about 5x. If it's in production and now I go back and want to fix it, the cost is off the chart, could be in the millions of dollars because I've got to pull the system offline, I've got to take people out. 
So the key here is that in the contracting language, as you described earlier with Kevin, if we went back into the FAR and said that the contractors themselves are, are responsible for code level security and using some kind of automated tool like Fortify, that then they would give an assurance to the government that their code is secure. You could then have people doing kind of an IV and V up above that or independent verification validation, and they test it and say, yep, it looks like what you did is pretty good. If I wait until I get it in production and I'm ready to go live and I've got a whole bunch of people saying, we need this system to go into Iraq or we need this system to take care of our wounded, and I find a major vulnerability at that point, well, you are just toast at that point, and there's not a whole lot you can do. Now, from the contract side, although this sounds, we in industry look at it and say, somebody's going to make a lot of money taking that time to fix it and go back. Well, it would be a lot easier if they did it the first time, and then you could spend those dollars on actually providing the mission-critical system. So I think that the language has to be that you got to provide good software. Now, the other side of that, though, is the legacy systems that you mentioned at the beginning, Tom, is we also have to go back to these legacy systems, do a scan on those, and then fix those vulnerabilities because in almost every breach that we can show, it came in, as Kevin described, through one of our pay systems, one of our older systems that manages our business, and those are the older systems. Okay, and we're going to get into that too as well, this whole idea of how you approach it from a technology standpoint, but I think it's interesting to note that maybe for the first time, at least certainly to an unprecedented degree, all of this has the attention of Congress, and you almost need a scorecard to keep track of all the cybersecurity legislative pieces that are moving at different rates through both houses. But a lot of it has been attached in both the House and the Senate to the authorization bills for 2011 that are making their way through. And so, Bob, does it look like uh, if these things finally get reconciled and most of the provisions remain attached to authorization, that seems like a really big step toward enabling the government to get around some of these security issues. Is that how it looks from your point of view? Yeah, I, I think definitely. I, I think this could be a, a, a huge crossroads in, in terms of how we're going to deal with this uh, very, very critical part of our defense in depth strategy. Um, I think it really is a tipping point uh, if, in fact, this legislation does uh, get in place and then, uh, then we have to act upon it uh, as a community. And uh, as long as, it has, long as it has the right hooks in place, I think we can make significant progress. I think one point that we've talked about, and I just want to reemphasize it, is the security part of it is fundamental. But in today's economy, where we're all trying to search for the, for the right amount of money to get something done, uh, security frequently will be the thing that will fall to the bottom of the barrel. And, and, and so um, one of the things that I think, as, as was pointed out by, by Joe and Kevin, that we have to emphasize that if you bake security in very, very early, you can save a lot of resources. I've seen some statistics. Right now in the Department of Defense, the estimates used to be about 8% of the IT budget is spent on security. If you bake it in early, you do it up front, you do it in an integrated fashion, uh, enterprise fashion, you can reduce those costs to maybe even 4% of the IT budget. Just imagine the cost savings. And then you have the resulting security enhancements that go along with it. I think that is the, uh, the other aspect of this that we have to emphasize. It's classic quality theory. I think De Deming was saying that stuff uh, 40 years ago about you know, cars coming through with scratches. Fix it before you get it out to the field. And, Kevin, when Congress gets involved, very often uh, there's welcome impetus for the federal bureaucracy to get these things done. But often... There's a lot of detail that maybe you wish had been left to implementation by the people 
that know what's going on. So uh, how does that uh, how does that work in terms of acquisition? You don't want to be too hamstrung. Uh, so does this seem like the right balance? Um, yeah, the proposed legislation that uh, is attached to the DOD bill, even though it uh, really should be looked at across all the civilian agencies as well, um, it really, uh, it, I think it's pretty good. I think it, it, it points to the priorities. It talks through the importance of software. Uh, it talks through the need to fund it. And it, and it leaves pretty much open uh, the directive of how it's going to be implemented. Uh, it does talk about fixing the problems. So I believe that if it's implemented properly within any government agency, but certainly the DOD will have to, um, I think it can be implemented on a program side that really will allow front-end fixing and be able to get into the systems early uh, and then also to be able to look at those legacy systems and, and those other systems that are out there today. One of the issues, as you know, is we're promoting sharing across government agencies uh, you know, within the DOD and then outside the DOD. Uh, and of course, business systems have always lead back to finance and uh, one way or another. And uh, so I think now the, the the interconnections and the tie-ins are making it even more important, I believe, to start getting in the software fixing immediately. And Bob, you said that uh, some of the recurring problems seem to be devilish year after year. But with all this going on in Congress and all the every week there's another conference and seminar, do you think maybe we're reaching a tipping point uh, where suddenly cybersecurity is just not on the government's mind, but really everybody's mind? and they look to government to be a leader here, are we finally getting to that point where this is going to cascade down into some permanent fixes? Well, I think we're real close to that. Uh, what I'm afraid of, however, is we have a tendency in government to, to wait for the, uh, the real uh, cyber 9-11, so to speak, to occur before we take action. Uh, I think we even can look at the terrible disaster that's occurring in the Gulf as a good example of how if we can put prevention first, uh, we can try to get on top of these issues. And I think it also points out what Kevin just said, which is that we have to look at this problem holistically across government and, as I said earlier, across our critical infrastructure areas. And just like the, the situation in the Gulf, I mean, that's an energy sector. We have a transportation sector. Uh, we have a financial sector. All of them have to look at these uh, types of measures in terms of cybersecurity in the same way that we're looking at national security systems. Um, and it's very important that we once again bake it in early, do it up front, so we don't have to get into disaster recovery mode, and in some cases to the point where we may have a situation where we have a cyber 9-11. So I think it's very important that we get on top of this problem. I think we're real close, uh, but we still have to really make sure that we walk that talk. And, Joe, I wanted to ask you this before we break here. Uh, when you mention infrastructure, as Bob just did, that gets the whole idea of virtualization and agencies moving to the cloud and shared services. And that seems to add another layer to the cybersecurity question. So how do we deal with that one? It really does. And and parlaying on what Bob just said, being from New Orleans, I'm, this oil spill is very near and dear to my heart. Um, whether you take medicine or some kind of disaster like this, there's going to be interagencies that are working together, whether you have FEMA working with medical, working with the National Guard. As these things come online and they start communicating in a cloud environment, there has to be some kind of tool that takes a look at the people coming in. Are they safe? Are they secure? Can we actually let them look at our information? Can we share the information back? There's an operational demand for that. 
And particularly as we go to this virtualization of everybody being able to come in, whether I'm a a foreign service officer on the mercy or the comfort in Haiti, or I'm now someone trying to help the National Guard and uh, Admiral Allen down there with some kind of spill, what's the mechanism to do that live online and plug those vulnerabilities? And that's where this kind of application software can do it real time. And we have to start implementing those. We can't take 18 to 36 months to say, wow, if we had only had that during the spill, we'd have been great. But we need it now. And that's why these real-time analytical tools have to be brought in, as you said, in this real-time sharing environment. Okay, we're going to get into some of the technical questions, but first a break from our for our sponsor. And you're listening to the Fortify Software's Cyber Warfare Prevention, securing your software and applications on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. On May 20th of 2010, Vivek Kundra released the State of Public Cloud Computing Report. It states that as we move to the cloud computing environment, we must ensure standards are in place that protect the privacy of our citizens and safeguard our national security interests. Fortify Software can help you unlock the benefits of the cloud while allowing you to feel safe about the security of your applications. Find the vulnerabilities inside your software. Fix them quickly and cost-effectively. Fortify your applications with security. Visit Fortify. Fortify.com and unlock the benefits of the cloud today. Welcome back to Fortify Software's Cyber Warfare Prevention, securing your software and applications on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Our guests today are Kevin Carroll. He's formerly Program Executive Officer of the Enterprise Information Systems Group at the Army, Bob Lentz, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Identity and Information Assurance, and Joe Grace, former Chief Information Officer for Navy Medicine. And we've been talking about a lot of the technologies involved and a lot of the policies we need to get, frankly, better software that's safer in the federal government. I think the question now becomes, once the laws are passed and we have the policies, how do we operationalize this idea of testing software, making sure it's developed in a safe manner, and going back and testing what we already have, all of that. Bob, comments? Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think the key is, of course, policies uh, are great, but I think if you have the teeth behind the policies, and I think the next big step is, this, is to change the culture. I think if we can change the culture to make sure senior leadership fully understands why this is the Achilles heel uh, of our overall uh, uh, defense in-depth uh, cyber strategy, I think we can make a major, major uh, stride towards getting ahead of this problem. Um, and I think we have the technologies in place today. I think there's been a view out there for many years that uh, software assurance has been too time-consuming, too expensive. Um, and I think we have seen with the emergence of a lot of new technologies um, and procedures that we can, in fact, uh, deal with this problem at that layer of the defense in-depth architecture. If we do that, I believe these policies can really make a huge, huge difference in getting ahead of this problem that we're facing every single day. Yeah, Joe comments on getting it to be part of the culture, really, as well as the operation. Well, I think it's a combination. Culture comes from the top, as, as Bob said. And if you don't have a whole lot of endorsement from the senior leadership, as in this is important, we won't accept that software unless it's actually secure, then it's going to be an irrelevant discussion. And the combination of Choosing operational requirements versus security is the constant battle of life. Do I let people in if I need to do it? Well, we'll see. 
In operational, what you really have to do is you have to start buying some of the tools. So there's got to be money applied to this. People have to get these licenses in place, whether it's at the contractor or an integrator level, and make them do it. Say the requirement is that your software will come to me secure. So we're going to buy these licenses like the Air Force did and make them available to all of our developers. Well, do I do that or do I tell them that they have to buy it? Well, they're going to bill it back to me in the contract anyway. So somewhere along the line, someone's got to pay for it. Secondly, you have to train people on what does it mean to actually go do and do code level security. How do the tools work? And when I get the result, how do I remediate it? Who's going to pay for that? How are we going to make that happen? And how am I going to verify that that remediation took place? So as Bob said, the culture and the leadership from the top has to say this is important and we'll accept nothing less. The folks in the middle need to say, how do we actually do it? And then the people that are the worker bees and the actual implementers of this need the tools, the training, and the access to the licenses to make that happen. Once that happens, I think we'll start moving the ball forward. And Kevin, how come that hasn't happened earlier? I mean, we could always put those into put those provisions in acquisitions. Why hasn't it just been standard all these years? Well, from the working level, uh, and meaning in the acquisition business or the program management business, uh, basically every legislative year there are tons of legislation being driving requirements uh, down to the program levels at some point. Because most programs uh, fund themselves five years out, the requirements, in other words, are laid down five years ago, uh, and they get, they get budgeted for that, uh, in order to do new stuff, you really have to shift money around. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do when the customer is looking for functionality to be delivered, maybe not security so much. And so, uh, and a good example of that uh, historically was the IPv6 legislation that kind of directed uh, that we had to move get moving across the department on that but there was no funding with it uh so really nobody paid attention to it uh until it became part of the process of procurement uh of getting your milestone approval and your program wouldn't get funded for the next year if it did not comply and so it really does require to operationalize it the the ability to get into the process of how a program gets fielded and approved, and then what ends up happening, uh, the program manager, who usually is focused on delivering schedule and under cost, uh, and the functional community who's interested in functionality, it'll get those two parties together to reprioritize uh, how security is going to get done and make it part of the system because they won't get their functionality without it. And I think the one most important quality that the world of software has now, the world of applications, is interconnectedness. And earlier we spoke about the cloud or shared environments and virtual environments where I think, Joe, you said that one of the things you have to do is test to make sure that's what's coming at you or joining you in the great uh, hot tub that is the cloud. Uh, Make sure that's okay before you let it in in a security standpoint. But there's another dimension to that, and that is the supply chain and the contractors that we're doing business with on an ongoing basis, aerospace companies, systems integrators, just plain suppliers. Uh, small and large, and very often they are possessors of a lot of program information about the federal government. We really do partner with them. So what about the supply chain, SIs, partners? What about their software assurance uh, that leads to governmental assurance, ultimately? Well, I think you've hit a key element in that one of the problems that you have as a CIO, for example, is I had hundreds of applications that I had absolutely no idea who wrote the application, who owned the source code, who actually put that together. And we may be four contractors from the original writer of that code, and it's now Lockheed Martin, it's now Raytheon, it's Harris, pick one. Um, But they're writing, they're taking code that was written by a small company in an innovative setting, 
well, who's responsible for those vulnerabilities? Is it the guy that's got it now or is it the guy that wrote the code? Well, if it's the guy that wrote the code, they're out of business. They were acquired. So it's very difficult for me to then assure that. If I'm buying new code, well, that's a much easier decision. I can say it's got to be secure before it gets to me. But one of the problems in the supply chain management is if I'm the contractor that's taken over a program, I can go back to the government and say, well, there was no requirement when I bid on this to make this secure. So therefore, you need to either pay me more money to remediate and do that, or I'm actually in compliance with my contract. If I write new wording into contracts that thou shalt do it, and there's no funding attached, it's again a great contract protest right there. If you deny my ability to deliver software to you because it's not secure with a requirement that wasn't there when I took the contract over, you got a problem. So that's why the policy has to go back and either add funding, which this policy out of the hack and sack actually says there's got to be funding applied from DOD for remediation. They put that in and they give them the ability with a no harm, no foul. We found problems. And for the contractors, it's actually a boon of business. We have an opportunity to go back and remediate. What an opportunity. We're going to go fix code. We'll make it better, faster, meaner, leaner, because whenever you open it up, you find other problems. But if we don't then direct them to do that, it's just another good idea. So I think that that's where you say in that supply chain management, the old stuff's got to be fixed. The new stuff we can manage. But now when I start blending old and new in this web cloud environment, how do I manage that? That's where those policies have to hit actual operational requirements. And Bob, you were saying, too, that uh, better quality built in from the first time that you code the software, of course, makes it much less expensive than fixing things in the field and when it's deployed. So how do you reconcile those two uh, sides because uh, you, you need money to make sure that the quality is there and yet that seems to go against the idea of coding safely in the first place to save money. Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, we're, and again, uh, we're not just talking about quality too. We're talking about the security of these systems and and I think it really comes down to the fact that we, you know, we have processes in the Department of Defense, processes that are becoming more commonplace across the U.S. government that it talks about the fact that you have a real certification or accreditation or approval to operate, and you're starting to see uh, the services and agencies begin to put teeth in those processes. And, and I think we're still not there yet. We have a long way to go. But I think if you've got a designated approval authority or a principal approving authority that is overseeing these various processes like, like the business community, if they are, in fact, doing their job, and it goes back to the culture point. If you're holding them accountable at the top and then holding the program managers accountable at the next level, um, you are then beginning to see the steps necessary to ensure that these policies are going to get enacted upon. And I think once you do that and you have accountability so that if a system is fielded and it's just been a cursory kind of look, then you hold them accountable for just making it a checkbox kind of situation. You, and I think if you can accomplish that change of culture and, and create that accountability environment, then I think we get to the point where we can begin to make major strides. And clearly in this, once again, in this area of software uh, assurance, I think we'll achieve the kind of end results necessary to deal with these threats that we're facing every day. And Kevin, you said some of the business systems are particularly vulnerable. This is where a lot of people are, are attacking but often the business systems are legacy systems that have been around long since paid for, and now they're just in maintenance and operational cost mode. So how do we handle that code that's already existing, already bought, and it's not something in development where you still have that leverage over the supplier? Well, 
that's a very good question, Tom. Most of the uh, systems that are in Iraq and Afghanistan, certainly in the logistics arena of, of the Army, are legacy systems written years and years ago, custom code, and they've been out there and operational, and very little money has been spent uh, towards uh, uh, fixing uh, any security issues or ensuring that that were protected there. And most of those systems subsequently feed the newer systems, uh, like the logistics modernization program and some of the ERPs that have been implemented in the, in the Army. And, and so there, it's a critical area because uh, we know many of the attacks we have come in at the legacy systems or come in at the older systems or the administrative systems and then work their way up to the command and control and the more tactical systems. So it has to be money put aside to fix those issues and, and really attack that problem. And it's a struggle, again, back to uh, the, the customer who wants to fund the newer stuff, not the older stuff, and who really uh, still sees security, uh, uh, you know, they don't understand, I guess, the, what could be going on within those systems and how it can affect the rest of the logistics or personnel or medical systems. So I think uh, it's an area that just has to get attention from the government. It's almost like an old house. You still have to go back and check for asbestos or lead paint sometime long after it's uh, paid for and amortized. Bob? Yeah, so I think um, that's exactly right. And I think Kevin brings home a very, very important point. And it goes back to the legislation if it gets enacted upon, which is the governance process, which is so critical. You have to really put teeth in making sure that enforcement occurs. Uh, One of the things that I know industry, at least the major information age companies, have learned long ago, that either you lock down those applications – or get rid of the older applications if you're not willing to put the resources into them. Unfortunately, we just don't do that. We let these legacy applications just stay around. Of course, they're the source of many of the vulnerabilities and breaches that we're seeing today. So I think we need to put teeth and governance in these processes. The legislation, I think, will help us do that. Um, and then, of course, the next step, as your beginning of this segment points out, is we have to begin to operationalize the legislation, the policies, and then put those technologies fully in place to get on top of this problem. And one of the answers might be that we just have to get rid of a lot of the old applications and then focus on fixing the current applications that are out there and then making sure we've got very, very strong policy in place to make sure the new applications have baked in security from the beginning. And that's a good chance to get away from the C language, which a lot of those legacy applications were built in, and that's a language that has plenty of vulnerabilities. And Joe, the question of governance also leads to the question of architecture. And so if you have tools to look at software and to give guidance on how to fix it and remediate it, where in the whole process do those tools lie uh, between development and acceptance and deployment, and who applies them? Well, the application of those tools is critical because in that life cycle management and that whole thing we've talked about in governance, if you take a product like Fortify, they've actually got three different components, and it's important to understand how something like this actually fits in. The first is I can give it to my developer, and as he's writing, he fortifies it. He looks at it, it tells him, hey, you didn't do that right, do it again. Okay, that's one piece. If I've got software that's already written, I can run this on it, find the vulnerabilities, it'll tell me what I need to do to fix them, and then I can make a decision as the leadership These are really important. I've got the money to fix those. These other ones I can put aside and manage those later. Based on my budget, here are the things that I can do with what I've got. And that one, 
no one ever touches that because it's behind my firewall, behind a cyber lock and everything. You know what? I don't need to worry about those 10. But these four are really important. But then the last one is I'm now going to take that system that I've gone to Afghanistan and I need to make it available back to the United States and I'm going to put it on air. Well, then I need to do a real-time analysis, which is it's running constantly. It's looking. It's at the server level. It's actually going through and looking at the code, the openings, the vulnerabilities as they come through and shuts them down and I make decisions on what ports are open. So development, review of old stuff, I can look at new stuff, but then I've also got to do the live stuff. So it's like a four-part defense. And Kevin, as a concept, not so much a product, but as a concept, that 360, can that be written into the way acquisitions are done? Yes, it can be and should be. I mean, uh, being an old contracting officer, uh, I know that, uh, especially at the time of competition, a contractor is going to bid what they have to bid to win the procurement. And so if no one mentions something like this, in the requirement or it's not in the evaluation criteria, it's not going to be bid or priced. Uh, and so in a way, in order to motivate uh, the software developer or the systems integrator uh, to look at this issue and make it part of their value solution when they're bidding to get business, the government really does have to direct it into the requirements and into the evaluation process. That's when you'll get attention. That's when people will bid. And that's when you'll start seeing progress early on uh, in the process, like Joe was mentioning. And so that question comes up, offense versus defense. Are we good enough as software developers, as users of software, and ultimately of, as stewards of the nation and its resources, especially when it comes to DOD, pretty fundamental mission? Are we good enough at defense, do you think, Joe? I think we're good enough at defense from the perspective of we set up walls and we set up all sorts of barricades, but we're defending for something that's no longer the main attack zone. So we've actually go, got to go out and be offensive and say, we're going to make sure that before the, before the actual hack occurs, we're going to shut down the way that that hack could occur. Before we actually have that vulnerability, we're going to close the door before they come in. And for the ones that we already have, we're going to go back. You use the example of asbestos in a house, owning an old house in New Orleans, when you go back and spend a lot of money just redoing your electricals, it's not very sexy, but it makes your house so that it won't burn down. It's an aggressive, offensive mode to go back and fix what you know is broken. But that's where, to go back to your original point, if we say we found a, a problem, we have to now go fix it offensively. We have to go do that proactively. Kevin, thoughts on that? Well, I would just add that um, the offensive attack, which uh, um, the, I believe the DOD does pretty well, uh, what makes it a little different than the defensive attack uh, is that offensively we have a unit or units that that's their focus, to be offensive, to go on the attack, to help protect uh, the U.S., really. Uh, it's a little bit more central control. Uh, the way that we work in DOD with very decentralized networks, um, hopefully Cyber Command will make that better, but for the bottom line, everyone's for themselves protecting their own network. So in the decentralized operations, it's very hard to get uh, standard approaches, standard defense uh, put in place. So, so I think it's, it's just a different can of worms. It makes us different in the government than commercial industry, which tends, to, I think, to have more central control over their network or networks. And, Bob, you had a pretty broad portfolio at Defense Department because you oversaw ID management, cybersecurity, and information assurance. That pretty much covers the waterfront. So just a final comment from you. Are you optimistic about this? Is this something that can be re reduced to a managerial problem that we can solve and finally stop worrying, at least uh, in a day-to-day -day sweat environment, about cybersecurity? Well, I mean, I'm clearly not going to 
uh, stop worrying. Uh, you know, I, I, I do believe, as we said earlier, and, and I think one of your important uh, questions uh, dealt with the fact that we are at a tipping point in this area. I think the good news is we have a serious dialogue going on. It's not just hall talk. I think there's stuff in writing. I think we're getting very close to addressing one of the most important elements of our architecture uh, that has been long um, misunderstood and not addressed. And I think if we can deal with that, I think uh, we'll fill a very important hole. Uh, that does not mean I'm going to sleep well at night uh, because it's going to take a, a really full court press uh, by all elements of the department, all elements of the government, all elements uh, of, our, of our private sector to deal with this problem. And I think uh, we all have to be do, you know, very diligent in staying on top of it, uh, or those adversaries, as, as we said in the beginning, they are a very aggressive, and they're looking for any little hole. And if we can close one very, very important area, and the, probably the area that has been least addressed, I think we can go a long way to deal with this, and maybe uh, we can start, start maybe getting a little better sleep at night. All right, great discussion. I want to thank Bob Lentz, Kevin Carroll, and Joe Grace, and thank you for listening to Fortify Software's Cyber Warfare Prevention, Securing Your Software and Applications. Here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM, I'm Tom Temin. Thank you for listening to Cyber Warfare Prevention, Securing Your Software and Applications, sponsored by Fortify Software on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to it in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Keyword, Fortify. Your mission-critical IT system just got hacked. Confidential data stolen. Could this have been prevented? Government organizations are experiencing dramatic increases in the quantity and sophistication of cyber attacks. Fortify Software Security Assurance Solutions are helping government organizations secure the software they depend on to run their agency's most mission-critical operations. Find the vulnerabilities inside your software. Fix them quickly and cost-effectively. Fortify your applications with security. Visit Fortify.com. That's Fortify.com.